if you can't hire me because of what I did over a decade ago, that's cool. I totally get that. That is my cross to bear. I made that mistake and I have to carry it with me. But if you don't want to hire me just because of that, I'd ask you to give me a chance. Let me show you what I can do. And that's what I tell my students. You know, it's get out there, show them who you are now, not what you did. We are not the sum of our decisions in that sense. You know, we're not. There are a lot of things that I am. I am I'm a partner. I'm a chef. I'm a pet parent. I'm a Mets fan. I am a member of the LGBTQ community. I am a daughter. I have felony convictions. I'm not a felon. I have felony convictions. And I will not let anyone brand me with that scarlet F anymore ever again. The Your Life After podcast is a place where people can talk about the lives they lead after traumas. This podcast will feature survivors, victims, and professionals sharing their experiences, expertise, insights, and struggles. The goal here is not to showcase stories of triumph, though I'm sure some of those stories will be triumphant. The goal is to shine a light on our own shared humanity and to perhaps encourage someone to move forward through their own trauma. I'm your host, Robin Dunbryant. I'm a coach who helps people heal from the physiological effects of generational trauma, sexual abuse, and sexual assault. Let's get talking, shall we? Hey there, Rebecca. How are you doing today? I'm doing okay. How are you doing, Robin? You know, I can't complain. I mean, I could, but nobody wants to hear that. So I won't. I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. Um, Let's get started. Uh, there's there's a lot of ground to cover, and I'm really excited to hear some of the things you've got to say. But I want to start in a place that feels it feels as playful as I've known you to be. So let's let's start, let's start there. You sent me a bio, which you know, if if I don't want to say snarky, I, cheeky, even though that's not a word I use, but I think that that's a good description of the bio you sent. I hate writing them, so mine are always there's always a little smart aleck thing about them. Um, But you describe yourself, and you said you're a devoted partner, a Mets fan, and a pet parent. And you also said you make a mean burger, which is true, and you have two felonies. And then the thing that got me is that you said, and I'll let you decide what's important, because you, meaning you, Rebecca, already know. And I love that. I think it's just it just really resonated with me. Um, So we're going to start with something that might feel really important right now. What's going on with the Mets in the midst of all of the stuff that's happening? You know, um, one of the things that's really, I think, just like with everybody else, you know, my whole life is topsy-turvy, just like everybody else, you know, with the pandemic and with, with, you know, just everything going on in the universe. um, My Mets uh, keep it real because, uh, you know, know, us recording this, uh, you know, we're this pandemic season, we're three games under 500. uh, We gave up a five-run lead. Um, you know, 
it's just nice to know that some things never change. Cespedes <laughs> uh, just decided I'm out. I'm done. I'm not going to play. It's the deuces. Um, and it's just, I mean, you know, man, when you're a Mets fan, you are, you are devoted. You are, I, it is, it is a deep, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's masochistic or if it's just, I just am a glutton for punishment. I don't know. Um, but it's, I have been a Mets fan since Gary Carter was traded from the Montreal Expos to the New York Metropolitans in 1983. So since the tender age of 10, I've been setting myself up for disappointment year after year after year. Um, you know, we've had some good runs. 86 will always be an incredible year, but, uh, you know, the Subway Series in 2000 and then 2015 and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's being a Mets fan. It's, it's, and when I find other Mets fans, especially here in the South, when I see somebody like with a Mets hat or a Mets shirt or something on, I'm like, let's go Mets. And they're like, let's go Mets. <laughs> it's like a kindred spirit in the sea, right? Yes. <laughs> the yes. boat has found yes. me. Yes. We share like, us, like usually it's across the aisle at Publix or something and we'll share the lock eyes and we'll share that that just five seconds of, I know your pain, you know my pain. (laughs) I am proud of, I'm proud to call you brother. And it's just, (laughs) it is, I actually, I make friends, I make friends on the internet, which isn't always the smartest thing to do, but um, I've come, I'm two for two this year, so I'm good with that. Um, And in one of my, um, one of my other obsessions is this show called West Wing. I don't know if I've ever told you about it. Um, but I do watch this show called West Wing quite a bit. And um, in one of my West Wing fan groups, a guy posted something about being a Mets fan because one of the characters in the show is also a Mets fan. And I'm like, oh, I have to be friends with this guy because he loves the West Wing and he's a Mets fan. So it's, you know, when worlds collide, it's it's a beautiful thing. Well, I mean, of course, clearly he would need to be your bestie. I mean, there's no there's no way around that, you yeah. know. And more than likely, more than likely you share a love of some sort of food or something. You know, the the deeper down the rabbit hole you get, the more alike you're going to find yourselves, right? Because those two things. Yeah, I can only hope. I can only hope. Yes, that is true because it is the Internet. Who knows? I have to – I laugh heartily when you're like, yeah, here's here's how our season starts. So, you know, this one consistent, constant thing is Mm -hmm. the disappointment of your team. I, I grew up in the Midwest. I'm not, I've, I've never had a team. I've never been a team girl. I just, I like to watch certain sports and I just root for who's playing well, which really bothers the people around me. But, um, but <laughs> by default was a Cubs fan because I grew up in Indiana. Uh huh. You want to talk about brutal? I sang my heart out when they won the, the World Series and then I cried because Harry Carey was no longer alive. Mm-hmm. And my brother, from the time I've known him, he's older than me, has been a Minnesota Vikings fan. And he's older than both really? of us, right? Oh, you want to talk about a brutal, a brutal run, right? This is what yeah. this is. And he's never wavered. He is a loyal person to the end. Every yeah. year he's like, you know, we just get a little bit better. Next year's <laughs> going to be our year. And I'm like, I don't know if that's going to happen in our, in our lifetime. And, and he will never, never switch. And, and I, I don't know where this came from. We've never lived in Minnesota. We, we, you know, none of us can understand it, but it is an unwavering love that he has for them. And I'm just like, you know, it is a beautiful thing and also very, very sad in a lot of ways. It really is. 
It really is. And, it, you know, I have my Mets flag uh, flying outside for the house. That's my Mets license. I mean, I like I have my Mets gear. I, there was a picture on social media of me not that long ago with my Mets shirt and my Mets mask. And I'm like, you know, I'm committed. I'm committed to my misery. So. <laughs> but it's a constant. And, and, and maybe in some odd way, the way our teams are behaving this year might be the one thing that's just unwavering in the midst of all of this madness. And there's something oddly comforting about that. I, you know, of course you yes. want your team to win, but there's something to be said for being in the rhythm of watching the sport and being elated or disappointed in the same way that you usually are while it feels like everything around you is just kind of moving at this, at, you know, at this really fast speed. Indeed. That's Indeed. that's all I can offer you. I have I have no other platitudes about your season. That's all I can offer is that maybe a light a light at the end of the tunnel, the lighthouse to the storm, is the baseball season and the way that the Mets are showing up. I uh, you know I, 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 as much solace as I've taken in in the fact that I do get to you know at least watch live baseball right now. Um, I, I'm, I'm almost I'm almost kind of at the same at the same time. I'm just like you know is it really worth it? Because we've already had to quarantine three teams, and right. these are supposed to be adults that are supposed to be able to take care of themselves, and you know they're not following the rules and they're getting their teams quarantined. So it's just you know, 2020 has just been a just a scratch my head kind of year. Just it a, has. really just a is that really? Yeah. It's and it's been, yeah. I mean, thank God it's August and it's August. Um, it's and August. I was. I was reading through some, I do a bullet journal. I was, and usually you're supposed to keep like track of, you know, you, you build an index. They call it an index. It's really the table of contents because it's at the front of the book. And yes, that matters a lot to me. Um, but you're supposed to build it as you go. And I didn't for this, this one that was the first half of the year. And so I was going through it and just kind of tagging the things that I wanted to be able to get to pretty quickly. That's the whole point. Like you, you, you make the list, you put the page number on it. You go back looking in the notebook, you can look at it and go, oh, that's where that list of very important mm-hmm. things is, whatever it was. Right. And I remember, like, the the first part of that journal was, you know, late November, December 2019. And mm-hmm. in 2019, talking about, <laughs> oh, my God, like, I've just got to survive this. I know 2020 is going to be the year. Things are going to shift. Things are changing. And then as the year rolls <laughs> on, it's like – all of that, I don't even remember what it was that supposedly made 19 so bad, right? Yeah. I mean, in the same way that maybe we're looking back on past presidents or presidential candidates and going, he's a great guy, he's okay. That's right. how 2019 feels right now. I have no real memory of it, but I know that it wasn't this enormous shit show. Maybe it was a smaller one. I I, I did utter the words the other day that um I was like, you know, I, I really always thought that, that W was going to be the worst president of my lifetime. I really, I, watching how he, the initial reaction to 9-11 and, and that whole, just everything, everything that mm-hmm. happened in those eight years, I thought, God, you know, wow, this is just really just the the stain on on the American president. No, no. Yeah, no, I put that out there. I, I apologize. I, I think I looked at my wife the other day and I was like, would you, would you, would you take W right now? She's like, oh, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And here's the crazy thing. And it's so interesting to watch this. And I mean, really interesting, like 
almost like specimens in a lab. I'm going to be really, really earnest about this because white folks are losing their minds, right? I never expect my elected officials to really have my best interest at heart. I expect that some things are going to happen that are good for me also, Mm -hmm. but I'm really just always expecting some kind of craziness to come, you know, towards the community. It's just, that's been my expectation since I've been paying attention. And so the bar is so low. It's really (laughs) so low for me. And I'm like, you know, it's like watching somebody really get down in limbo and you're just shocked that anybody could contort themselves and move in this way. I have never seen, I've never seen anything like this in my life. I'm hoping that this is the worst that we see. I don't believe that it will be, um, but I'm just kind of like, let's just, let's go back to, you know, I, some memories popped up and we saw Mitt Romney, who I just roasted for, for months and months. And I'm like, oh, well, he was a, he was a, Mittens was a fine man. That's kind of what he I said. He was a fine man. <laughs> you know, ideologically, I don't agree with him, but there's some things that are going on with him that just feel like I could deal with that. That would be okay. That would be okay. We talk about, you know, the fantasy is, like, if we could leave the country, you know, where do you go, right? Where do you go with black people and you're going to be safe? And then the conversation, there's this lovely blogger that I follow. I think she's amazing. She and her family have moved to to the Netherlands, and they're having this great time, and she posts stuff, and I really love her and hate her at the same time because her children look happy and relaxed, you know, like they're at school just going to school where they play with other kids. It's craziness, right? The the things that she's doing. And I'm like, oh. And then I think, you can't go there. Like, do black people live there? <laughs> There's a woman that is friends with her, another African-American woman that's friends with her. She responded to something, and I was like, hey, um, I see that you're there. Do you mind if I ask you a couple of – can I inbox you? She's like, sure. And so I sent her, you know, questions. said, you know, how is it? What's going on? And she was like, well, I mean – you know, there's some people that are, people are curious, more so than racist is what she's noticing. And there is some racism. She said, but it's, you know, a tolerable amount. This is where we are. It's like, I don't worry about my kids getting hemmed up by the police. I don't worry about the, the schools getting shot up. I feel, you know, that the government is going to take care of most people, and I'm just going to ride the wave in with most. Um, but, you know, a tolerable amount of racism. I'm like, I could deal with that. I could I could deal with, you know, Schwartz Pete every Christmas if it meant that the rest of the year was Schwartz Pete. You know what I mean? Oh. Like, what the fuck, though? This is where we are. This is yeah. how low the bar is. It's like, just give me a little concentrated racism around the birth of our Lord and Savior. Let's do that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean, my goodness. You know, the the thing that, that – did you, did you hear about the basketball player the other night? didn't didn't take a knee right and one of the comments i saw was you know jesus was a black man that was you know killed by the police jesus would want you to take a knee you know didn't take the knee so he took the knees that was the uh so if if you know if there was if there was i guess you know if you were going to put racism into a christian holiday that i mean you know why not why not just mix it in there why not that one. Just, just put yeah. it in there. Just a little black slave boy following Santa Claus around to, <laughs> to give out. You know, not elves. We, we couldn't just, well, and, you no, know, just and the elves are oppressed. Let's not oppress other people 
in the the novel. Right. 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 Let me not be that person like, let the elves handle it. No, they should be freed also. But why are we coming up with this guy? Where's this guy even come from? How did that happen? That we would just do I, in the Netherlands, were they part I, of the slave trade? They just imagined having slaves there? Like, I'm not even sure if that was a thing there. I don't think it was. I, I, think think it was. I, I Maybe that's probably why it's turned into some sort of children's fairy tale. That, you know, it's like, we never had this, you know, so. This is what we dream of. (laughs) Yeah, I guess it couldn't have been that bad, so here's Schwartz B. I remember the first time I saw this, I think it was about, I guess it was about a decade ago. I lived in Europe when I was in the military, but I lived in Central Europe. And so I didn't get a lot of the folklore from from Northern Northern Europe. And I guess it must have been like 10 years ago when I first heard about this, and I just, I thought I was going to die. I was like, are you kidding me? This is, are you, wow, this is hilarious and sad all at the same time. And, and it was like, really? And yeah, but here we are, you know, here we are. And, and there's, we still have Schwartz feet. So You're again, having- you know, the Mets are still losing and we still have Schwartz feet. So there are still, <laughs> there's still some consistency in our world, you know, and those things are not things that we want, but it's still consistent, yeah. so we're going to... But it's consistent. And I'd like, again, a concentrated amount of racism over, you know, a couple of weeks period, and then the rest of the year, relatively unscathed, maybe people looking twice like they might not be from here, and then leaving us the fuck alone. So kind of like a purge, kind of like, you know, you know, the purge, where it's like the night of everyone goes out and does all the evil, dastardly things they want to do, and then the rest of the year everyone's fine. Yeah. So like a... A purge and, of racism, and then everyone else is just then the rest of the time you're just like GTFO. And yeah. here's here's the other thing: nobody says you have to stay there for Christmas. You could close nope. up shop. You could be gone for all of December. Let them get it all out of their system. Come back. Yeah. Your neighbors bring you bread. They're like, "Welcome back. Where were you? Not fucking here." And they're like, "Okay." And you just go on with your life. I'm really that. I'm starting to think about this is a plan coming together right here. It's just, we- We've had the conversations of where we would go, um, and and we have, you know, I I still have to get a passport, um, and Lauren has to get hers uh, renewed. But you know, we've we've had the conversation, we have the plan, you know, in in place of of where we would go, and it's kind of difficult because like you can't just you can't just go to Canada. I mean, it's the easiest, the most convenient place, but um, I have felony conviction, so it's like um, I can't just go up to Canada and be like knock knock. Hey, I'm a chef. I want to come up there and and hang out. Oh, um, fuck so, me. Are you? I, yeah. Okay. And this yeah. is why. I mean, this is part of what we're talking about. So talk. Let's start there, <laughs> because yeah. I I there are so many things, and I tell you this all the time. So this won't this won't. But for for our listeners, I never remember. I never remember that you have convictions, and and it's just because I also usually don't remember what people do for a living. I know what you do because you fed me several yeah, well, times. But if you worked an office job, I'd have no yeah. idea what you do. Um, so there are places that you are not able to travel, or would it be the the immigrant experience to try to work someplace, or is it the both? immigrant? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, I can travel. I can travel there. There are places. There are places. I'm sure there are places that I wouldn't be able to get a visa to go into. Um, I'm. I guess I'm fortunate in the fact that. Um, both of my convictions are decades old. My first conviction was in 1995. Uh, my second conviction was in 1998. 
uh, the last time I was arrested was 2006. So, um, and that was, that was fun. I'll tell you about that in a minute. But so it's, you know, it's the immigration process really okay. more than anything else. Um, if, if, because, because our marriage is recognized now, um, thank you. Thank you uh, to the Supreme Court for that. Um, but, you know, if my wife were to get a job and we had to move, then, you know, exceptions would be made. But just to immigrate on spec, you know, it would be difficult. Um, I can I, I am eligible for Irish citizenship. I have to pay a fee and give them a copy of my father's birth certificate and my grandfather's birth certificate. And I can become an Irish citizen and we can go to Ireland. Um, but I don't drink anymore. Uh, so, you know, um, not sure what else we would do. So there's that. Um, and it's a, it's a long way. And, you know, I don't have siblings, but my wife does. And there's, you know, a lot of factors that we have to weigh in. We have this conversation a lot of where would we go? How would we get there? You know, we've, what would we, what would we do? And we especially have it revolving uh, around the worst case scenario in November. Right. You know, that's the, you know, what do we do? Should, should things go sideways again this November? Because the last time um, we were like everyone else, like dumbstruck and, um, and we're like, well, it, 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 he'll get, he'll do something stupid and get impeached in a year. And it took a little longer, but still nothing happened because, you know, white people and we're good for that a lot of talk and not a lot of action sometimes and it's just you know the system works for those who work the system Mm. you know and that's true in so many facets of life and and so now we're like what do we do and it's you know there's a lot of reasons for me that it's hard because I'm a I'm, I'm a veteran of the United States military and I took an oath as a soldier and I wasn't a good soldier I was not good at it I'm first to admit because I was very active in my addiction when I was uh, on active duty. Um, but I, I still, I took an oath and I said that I would, I would stand up for the constitution of the United States of America. And it's really difficult to watch everything that's happening and not feel some sort of pull to, uh, to do something about it. Um, but at the same time, I also see, you know, 150,000 people dying from this virus and people getting shot in cities across the country protesting. And so it's, it, you know, it's just, I'm pulled in like 18 different directions and it's not fun. There's just so much going on right now. It's not even just, it's nothing, nothing about this year has been good. This was supposed to be the chosen year, you know, like all of the holidays fell on weekends, like it was supposed to be the best year ever, you know, hindsight is 2020. I think that, that is, you know, yeah. Yeah, that's a joke. Um, I I don't know what's on your apocalypse bingo card for uh, the rest of the year, um, but I'm not looking at mine anymore because I think I'm like I think I'm like one spot away from a bingo, and I'm just I'm not down for that. Yeah, I've decided not to play. It's, I'm 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 really that that's where I, that's where I am. I yeah I can't I can't because. Because there is so much that happens that seems like it would have never happened, yeah. um, or 
there are a lot of things that are that are kind of bubbling up that are seen now that were kind of understood. So if we talk about if we take the racial dynamic off the table because that's that's so that's the sort of thing that for you know for me I just kind of shake my head I'm incredulous like really you, you really had no idea this was going on. Let's move that to the side because that gets <laughs> really confusing for a lot of people. I don't I don't understand why, but okay. And I'm suburban. Like let's think about this. Like I am not I'm a, I'm a Midwestern Indiana suburban kid. So it's not like I grew yeah. up in Chicago or Indianapolis even. Like I grew up in a big city in, in Indiana, but very similar to Tallahassee, right? Kind of spread out, you know, it, it, it was not a city. It was a town that just grew. Right. And right. I get it. I see it. I understand it. Where the fuck has everybody else been? We're going to let that go. I'm going to let it go. I'm not letting it go. I'm holding on to it. But if we look at like the rest of the stuff and it's just like, wow, we, we really, everybody has just decided we're going to play. We're going to go rogue. We're just going to play by our own rules or we have been playing by these rules all along, which is part of it. Mm-hmm. And y'all, we gave you the rules out of the box, but these are house rules and the house mm-hmm. rules say that we can do anything we want to. Yep. It's like, oh, okay. Um, it's madness. It's really maddening it to kind of look at this and, and think about how many people have, I mean, you weren't a good soldier. I didn't know you then. I'll, I'll take your word for it. But there is, um, I'm, a, I'm an army brat. My dad was a, he retired a lieutenant. Nope, he retired a colonel. Um, so, yeah, you know, and there's something about the service. There's something about you can spot somebody. You can see yeah. it. You can see it in them. And there is this, there's this sense of understanding what it is that you've set out to do, knowing your mission, if you will, and really kind of going about it that you still, you still embody that. There are things about you that I see that. And I'm like, okay, some of that you took with you, whether it was you before or not, that's kind of the, the attribution. It's like, yeah. oh, that, that's a, that's a military thing. That makes sense to me. Yeah. Cause yeah. You know, I grew up, I grew up with that. Um, and, to be able to, you know, to look at these things and to say, okay, we kind of have a contract. We all understand this is our social contract. We're mm-hmm. going to behave in these sorts of ways. We're going to do these sorts of things. And to have that pulled out from under you, it, it is it yeah. is beyond disconcerting. Um, it is really It is really difficult to kind of wrap your mind around it. And, you know, to, to look at it, I can never look at it any other way, but to put the trauma hat on, and to watch people be traumatized over and over and over again. You know, you, you, I've wondered often, and I, I don't know about our electeds on, on either side of the fence. I'm going to say that, you know, there's some folks that I'm like, yeah, what are you doing? What's really happening? And that's when I'm really fired up. I'm really upset with them. But there are other days when I look at it and I go, they can't be any different than me, you know, kind of blowed, bowled over by all of this stuff and responsible. Like, I could be upset about it, and I'm at home. This isn't my job. This isn't what I'm supposed to do. I don't have any constituents. I don't have any – I've not made any sort of promises or oaths to the country on a larger scale, you know, besides just trying to be a decent human being. Right. Um, and that that weight has to be – it has to be horrific um, to have made these really public agreements and to uh, – I don't know, to fall in line with things that you don't believe in 
to be publicly maligned for things maybe that you do agree with. I'm not sure exactly how some of these folks are feeling or to feel completely helpless to shift things when you know that they're not right. You know, that Mm -hmm. kind of, that, that explains to me for, for some people, for some elected officials on, on both sides of the fence, why they have not been active in this process to make things better. Because it's just this right. huge, this huge trauma response that everybody is exhibiting. Um, and, and I don't know, I don't know how people are gonna, I don't know how folks get out of that, you know? I mean, I know how yeah. individuals get out of it, but collectively, without people naming it, and how many people have that vocabulary, I don't know. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the, the word, I mean, just that, that you, know, you said that, that trauma response and that really just kind of nails it. Um, you know, I have only really put the word trauma into my vocabulary in the past three years, you know, and, and like learning where not just what people respond and how people respond, but where they're responding from. Um you know, and looking at things through that lens is such a, it, it's, it, it makes, it's illuminating. It, it really is. And, and I often joke that, you know, I work in an environment that practices trauma-informed care as much as they possibly can. Um, and I often joke that, you know, my definition is, you're going to tell me you have trauma and I'm going to tell you I don't care. That's, you know, <laughs> my definition of trauma-informed care because as a, as a, as a soldier, as a, you know, all of my, all of my, um, uh, you know, my career has been built on that, that one, I did take that with me, you know, that, that just, that, you know, sense of discipline, that sense of duty, that sense of honor and integrity, even though I wasn't a good soldier because of my alcoholism, I was, I still took those core values with me and I, and it, and it translates into the kitchen um, because, you know, the kitchen is built on a brigade system and there's a hierarchy and there, there's an unwritten code that, you know, has been around for, for centuries. And, it's now it's starting to unravel a little bit with, you know, you can't have a kitchen mouth the way you used to be able to have a kitchen mouth, you know, the Me Too movement and the the sexual harassment and the stuff that made line cooks, you know, a, a, a merry band of a motley crew, you know, but it's still that, you know, it, there's that trauma where people are coming from. It, it's just, you know, every environment that I've put myself into up to this point in my life has been designed to completely and thoroughly ignore that, like just Jesus. to disregard that. I mean, because if you think about it, that's what you're told. You are given an order. You're given a directive. And, you know, in the military, it's, you know, yes, sergeant. Yes, sir. It's yes, ma'am. It's you do what you're told to do more often than not without question. And, you know, a question is caused for a court martial. In the kitchen, it's the same. I tell, I even today, I tell my students there are three answers in the kitchen. It's yes, chef, no, chef, and I don't know, chef. And that's, that's it. Because if you're in the middle of a service and, and I tell you I need you to do something and you want to know why, I don't have time to tell you why. Ask me after service and I will happily tell you why. If you ask me why in the middle of service, I'm very likely to bite your head off. Say some very unkind things about someone related to you, either your mother or your sister. And that's not, you know, it's not life. There's something you said I really want to, I really want to kind of, I want to touch into this a little bit. All right. I don't want to dig, but I want to touch into this because it feels 
so fucking important to me, this idea of you putting yourself into these situations to disregard your own trauma. And, and I'm not, uh, yeah. please, please know I'm not pointing at just you, right? I do the same thing and I see people do it, <laughs> right? So it's yeah. not like, yeah. I'm not sitting here going, oh, I've never done that before because that's not <laughs> true. Um, but I know that there's, there are all of these layers to mm-hmm. who you bring to the space that you live in right now, right? Mm-hmm. You mentioned growing up with a, a functioning alcoholic in the family. You've been in recovery for, for years and years. I, I've not, I've not known the you that started this, this path that you, that you're in now, right? Like I've kind of met a little, a little more polish than I might have met, you know. <laughs> what, just, right? Just, just so, I just mean, this I, much. Just I don't want to, I, yeah. see here and what, what I'm trying to do is not necessarily, just so you know, I knew that you wouldn't let me say, I've met a more polished person without coming back with something. I think that you're, you know, you're doing some good shit, right? We've all got shit with us. Everybody does. Um, And, and, and whether or not we recognize it or own up to it or whatever. And I do the same thing. We call them bingisms in the house after Chandler from friends. And somebody says, you make a joke. That's my, that's my go-to. But I, I, I want to, let's, can you talk to us a little bit about kind of these, these shaping things, right? Because I'm I'm hearing you talk about both the hierarchy in the kitchen. I'm thinking about the service, and I'm thinking mm-hmm. about some of the things that you've shared about kind of the things you went to before you hit those spaces, and how crucial they might might be. Maybe I'm I'm projecting. You, you're yeah. going to tell me, but no, how crucial they might be to your recovery to have been in these spaces, to be in the service, decide maybe that's not for you, to be in the kitchen, and to have. You know, the, the thing I know about people dealing with addiction and trying to heal from that to, to move into a space where they can say, I'm actively working on not doing that, is that structure is crucial for a lot yeah. of people. We, 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 we bounce around without any sort of skeleton. We're just blobs all over the place, right? Talk to us a little bit about, yeah. about kind of how these, these places have shaped you. So there are – so I joined the military when I was 17. So in the first – you know, leading up to that incredibly, um, I don't want to say, I don't want to say stupid because I'm a full believer that everything that I've done up until now has gotten me where I am today. Mm-hmm. And I kind of, I'm, I kind of like, I'm pretty okay yeah. with who I am today, right? So, you know, there's people like, well, if I could go back and tell my younger son, no, because it would change, you know, it's a choose your own adventure. And I've gotten to this page by making all those other choices. And um, joining the military was not the, in hindsight, <laughs> not the wisest decision. I had a, I had some scholarship offers for um, some some really good universities, and um, decided no, I was going to I was going to join the military um, just right before uh, Desert Shield and Desert Storm, and. Um, you know, leading up to that point, though, there were three or four really major shifts, you know, in my life that kind of changed the way I looked at things. When, when I was just beginning school age, when I was like five, we moved from New England down to Birmingham, Alabama. And um, it was a little bit of a culture shock. Uh, just, just a smidge. Uh, and this was in the late seventies, okay. uh, like the, the late seventies. 
one of my earliest memories uh, of being in in Birmingham was being in our um, in our Plymouth Scamp. We had a we had a bronze Plymouth Scamp with a cream top, and Klansmen uh, handing out flyers to a rally at a stoplight. And um, my school, you know, once I got into school and everything, my school didn't the school system in Birmingham didn't fully get desegregated until I was in the third grade. Wow. So that was 1981. You know, so it's, I experienced, um, the, 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 just the, the, the seething generational trauma of racism from, from the, the people doling it out from the white people that we lived near from the people that, you know, I, I, I didn't, I didn't say yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am. It was mom and dad, and yep, and okay, and and then I wasn't. I didn't know what a switch was. I didn't, my dad stopped spanking me when I was about three. It's like when you were old enough for me to talk to you and reason with you. That was when the belt got put away. I remember the first time my neighbor was watching me, and she told me to go pick a switch, and I was like, "The light switch? What are you? What are you? What are you referring to, you crazy woman?" Um. You know, so that moved, that was a huge culture shock. And then my parents got divorced when I was eight. Um, so, you know, we, we'd only been in Alabama for a few years. Um, my saving grace was that my parents would put me on an airplane like, the Saturday after I got out of school every year and send me back up to Connecticut um, to be with my grandparents and um, because that was, I was the only grandchild on my mother's side of the family. So that was, you know, a big thing. Um, and it kind of got me out of a lot of the day-to-day horrors that I was, I was just trying to, you know, navigate as a child. Um, the divorce was not fun. I didn't want to live with my mother. Um, I, my mother um, was a, an active alcoholic until I was 14 years old, and I didn't put a finger on that for a long time until I was about until I was about nine or ten. I didn't put a finger on how bad it really was, but. I talk about the tightrope that I learned to walk. You know, I learned to keep that balance and keep the peace. And I learned that making fun of things and making things funny um, was the easiest and fastest way to defuse a situation. Um, and and my mother, um, my mother was did the very best she could with the tools that she had. Uh, the tools that she had were not very good, but she did the very best that she could with them. Um, I've learned now she's been gone uh, tomorrow will be 10 years mm. uh, and in I've learned now that she wasn't she wasn't great at being a parent and it's okay because you don't get a manual it's not like you know you have a kid and then they go okay here's the instructions on how not to screw up your kid right um, you know so that was the the second big chunk of of trauma that I carried around with me and there was some uh, there was some sexual abuse that happened as a kid um after the divorce that you know i it just it was there and it's another thing that i've had to deal with and then i started drinking i started drinking in um in middle school i i started really really drinking you know uh, my first drink that i remember having i was eight Mm. um and it, it just escalated it escalated quickly um i spent 16 years of my life, um, basically 
drinking, just doing nothing but. Um, and I and I don't say that. I, I always share this when I'm in meetings. You know, I don't say that um, I experimented with drugs because I did not wear a lab coat and no data was collected. So it was not an experiment um, by any stretch of the imagination. But I, um, if you told me it was going to make me feel good or not feel, yeah, I'll take that. Um, I didn't like didn't like needles, and I'm grateful for that. So you know that all of that kind of just built and built and built on this whole feeling. I always say I felt like I missed that day in school where you learned how you were supposed to 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 deal with things. You know, I felt like I was just a little bit off, like I was just a little less than everybody else, and that just you know, kind of just layered on top and on top and on top, and it's just feeds right into that natural sense of self-deprecating humor that I love to throw out because if you're going to make fun of me, I'm going to do it first. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe that's why I'm a Mets fan. Man, that's some deep stuff. Oh, shit. You know, that's it right there. I mean, that's it. Boom. There's, there's the shift right there. I'm a Mets fan because I've got to be. It's just in my DNA. I should call my brother. <clears throat> <laughs> maybe that's why he's a Vikings fan. Maybe that's why he's a Vikings drama. fan. I mean, you know, he's like, this is this is the little the little push back into this old system that that I you know I'm working really hard to get out of. Good God, that explains it. Man, that explains everything. So, but yeah, I always I always found a way to put myself in these situations where I didn't have to look at the things that were inside of me that were making me crazy, that were just hurting me and just making my brain. My brain is like the Daytona 500. It's constantly, it's like just going around in circles, thinking about 18 different things all the time. I don't know how to make my brain be quiet. I'm not good at meditation. I'm not good at, not good at sitting still. Um, I, I just have to think all the time. Like my brain is like just, you know, ticking all the time. So I put myself in situations where I don't have to. You know, in the military, you don't have to think. Mm-hmm. You get trained. You get trained to act. You get trained to know what you're supposed to do on command, like a dog. It's just, you know, boom, you, you do what you're supposed to do. And that's how it works. That's the way it's supposed to work. In the kitchen, it's the same thing, you know. But I didn't come right out of the military and go right into the kitchen. I, I did retail for a few years, and I did. I worked as a mechanic for a few years because I was a mechanic in the military. Um, which has come in really handy owning a food truck. Um, so, you know, and it, it was just, I just found it easier to not have to deal with that stuff. And I've always, you know, up until about probably 10 years ago, um, just kind of wrote it all off and just was like, you know, yeah, stuff happened to me when I was kids. Stuff happened to me when I was a, a young adult. Stuff happened to me. Let it go. It's back there. Why Why does it need to be up here with me? And I naively thought that that was just how it was. Like, okay, yep, that's fine. Just you know, turn the switch off. And then I and then I realized when I got with um, when when I met Lauren and and we got together that you know there was a lot more. There's a lot more to it, and it's not just my experiences, but the experiences of my mother and of her mother. And that generational trauma is, is a real thing. And it's not something that I'm, I don't know, it's just, it's just my, my therapist said, you know, if 
if there was if there was a way to just push through and soldier through everything you would have found it by now mm. like yeah yeah that's accurate <laughs> you know and she's like you don't get she's like they, they don't give out awards for just pushing through you, right. you have to deal with it you just you have to or else it's, you're never if you don't it's never going to go away and i'm like uh i hate that answer so it's, you know now i'm in a situation where i for the past three years i've been in a situation where i look at all of these things head on every single day sometimes simultaneously and it's it's a lot so i kind of went you know kind of went in the opposite direction i went from insulating myself completely from anything that would make me want to look at the failures of my life um or as what i saw is you know the things where i was less than adequate um to putting myself in a situation where I deal with all of the things that happen to me through vicariously through other people and and then look at them and take them through almost through you know the step process and and break down and figure out you know well why does that bother me so much um you know I got I got so broad my last drink in December of 1997, and uh, I didn't start actively participating in recovery meetings and stuff until uh, until 19 November of 1999, and uh, it was 22 months of of just being dry. It was hard. I, it was hard. It was. I had three. I had three roommates um, that sat me down: an atheist, an agnostic, and a pagan. And they asked me if I needed Jesus. <laughs> and offered to take me to church and I was, I was making them crazy you know and 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 when I started going back to meetings and I met um as I'd done I'd gone to meetings before I knew I was an alcoholic when I was in the military I went to I went to meetings when I my first meeting um when I was 18 years old Fort Belvoir Virginia I mean I knew I knew then and it, I did you know outpatient counseling and outpatient rehab and their meetings just to get people off my back and I put a little bit of time together and then relapsed and that was just the way it had to be for me but once I got really into recovering from the disease of alcoholism and, and recovering from being a, a you know an addict and an alcoholic it was like I started getting some tools to deal with stuff and I started feeling like that day I missed in, in school where everybody else knew how to deal with stuff I kind of got handed a little toolkit and it, and it helps it's not all the answers um, but it's a lot of them and and when I when I stop and I think about where I am and what I'm looking at I can use those tools to to help me kind of navigate through situations uh, sometimes with more grace than others Grace is not my middle name, my mother always said. And that is so, so true. <laughs> I think the biggest, I think the biggest thing that I've, that I've, I've really picked up out of that toolkit and taken with me is, um, so I, I have a, an obsessive nature. I obsessively watch the same show over and over and over and over and over again because I, it's predictable, it's comforting, I know how it's going to, I, I obsessively watch baseball even though I know we have a horrible team almost every year and I know pretty much how it's going to play out. 
when I got into recovery, I, I took that same um, that same approach to the book, to, to to the text, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And my first, my actually my first big book is underneath my nightstand, and it's uh, it's falling apart. It's all tabbed and highlighted, and no, you know, it's a text. It's a text. It's designed for a living. And um, they uh, one passage that I say all the time is. Uh, from page 417, acceptance is the answer to all my problems today. Anytime I am disturbed, it's a direct reflection. If anytime I'm disturbed by someone, some place or thing, it's a direct ref- reflection of something that I find objectionable within myself. And, um, yeah, and, and it's kind of, that's that really even today bleeds into my work because, um, uh, you know, whenever I, I have a, a student, that is getting under my skin um, for whatever reason, you know, I think about that line, I think about that passage, and I think about there's a, a line in an Indigo Girls song that says, everything that's wrong with, everything that I believe is wrong with you is wrong with me. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, it's true. It's true. It's from hand-me-downs on Nomads, Indians, and Saints. I don't obsess about things. I'm just preparing for the day I get to go on Jeopardy. You know what's interesting that you're talking about this? It's it's so – I love it because I see this, um, and you're talking about this – I have the monkey minds as well, so I'm always mm-hmm. thinking. I'm always on. Um, and, you know, I do a lot of different body work, so yoga was the first place where I could actually – where I could not think – um, where I would just do because I'm not really physically coordinated. Like I'm coordinated for sports. I'm a sporty sort of person, but there's a measure of grace that is required in yoga that I didn't have. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it's like, I got to really pay attention to what the heck is going on here because otherwise I'm going to be headed in one direction. Everybody else is going to be headed in another direction. And what I really don't want in a crowd is people staring at me. So I'm like, let's just do that. And that would became the place where. I wasn't necessarily quiet. I'm giving myself a hard time. I'm trying to figure out left or right. I'm trying to do whatever, but I was there. Like I was present in this space. And you've got those places that that's meditation for me. It doesn't matter sitting on a cushion, you know, with your hands and some sort of mudra. What the fuck? That's for some people, right? Not for me. No, but like, you know, the, the behavior, even in a kitchen, right? We we come in, Mm -hmm. we set these things up this way. This is how we prep the night before. This is what we do in the morning. This is how we run things. That in and of itself is a meditation because you're in that space. And I think it's really, I love hearing people talk about that um, because it becomes more accessible for for others, right, to recognize where they have that in their own lives and and where they're kind of already using those skills so that it doesn't have to be you've got to go climb the mountain, find the guru, sit at his feet, you know, for years and years, whatever that is. But it's like, what can you, how can you slow down your own time, even in something that you do? And even t- television shows, I just finished The Office for like, I think I've probably seen it all the way through maybe 10 times now. Uh, I still laugh at the jokes. We're finding new things in the confessional yes. later on when they're sitting in the, in I think it's in Michael's office or I'm not, I'm not sure who's, I'm in the conference room. The confessional is yeah. in the conference room. If you look over the person's shoulder, Generally, Stanley is sitting very, very still. He doesn't move in 90% of them. So that was the thing we were doing last time, seeing if Stanley moved. Because we've already seen the show. We already know what's going on. And it was hilarious because, you know, then when he moved, it was like, he moved. I don't know, the small things, right? It is. 
It is. I, I, I probably, I, I've done the same thing as West Wing. I like, I probably watched it like, uh, if you ask my wife, she'll say it's a hundred. But I, I probably honestly watched all seven seasons all the way through, probably close to to thirty times. I mean, I just, it, it really, it's just, you know, it's meditation, I guess. But I, I found, so, I noticed something. The last the watch through before last, like in the background, somebody held something up that correlated to something that was said like three scenes earlier, and I'm like, oh, it's all freaking out about it. I'm like, oh, who can I call and talk to about this? And I had to post it on one of the West Wing groups that I'm in on Facebook. Notice this in one of one of the West Wing groups that I'm in on Facebook. I'm in three. It's okay. It's fine. Um, it is. You know, I, I think that. The two places um, in the world where I, well, three, the three places in the world that I, I think I felt right and, and at peace um, has been in the kitchen, you know, when it's at its busiest, when things are just cranking, um, in, in certain meetings, in certain AA meetings, I, I feel a sense of calmness and, and, a, and a sense of peace. Um, because of the people around me more than anything else. Um, and then when I did, uh, I did improv comedy for six years when I lived over in the Panhandle. And man, that was just like, cause you don't have time, you, you don't have time to think. I mean, you right. think, but you don't right. all at the same time. You know, I used to say my mother used to tell me to think before I speak and now I get paid not to. And it's, you know, you had to you had to keep because we we ran a PG show. We did PG thirteen. We tried to stay away from certain certain words and certain subjects and things. And you had to kind of think about some things. But but yeah, those places, those little moments of of zen, those little moments of when all the wheels are turning and everything's happening. And my very first sponsor when uh, when I lived in Germany uh, and I was trying to play at getting sober. My very first sponsor was trying to help me remember to find my feet because I was always just, you know, projecting and thinking about what's going to happen next and how I could control it and what I was going to do and everything. And she's like, but your feet are on the floorboard of my car and we're going to the Friday night meeting. And, you know, that is where your serenity is. Your serenity is where your feet is. Your serenity is when you get off one train. And you go upstairs to catch the next train, and it's just pulling in as soon as you step up to the platform. That's your serenity, just being where your feet are. And it's taken me 30 years from that point to to this point to get some sort of understanding of that, you know. It's 22 and a half years of sobriety. It's, it's, I'm learning, the other thing I'm learning now is not to should on myself. That's a really hard lesson. You know, I should be further in my spiritual growth. I should be a better human being. I should be doing more. No, because if you if you would, you could. If you could, you would. And 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 you you're doing the best you can. So don't don't should on yourself. And we don't we don't spend a lot of time. I well, a lot of us don't spend a lot of time shooting other people. We're so hard on ourselves. Like. The measure of grace that I extend to others, uh, if if I was consistently treating myself that way, I would probably mm-hmm. feel just so delightful all the time, right? I'm I, I'm 
I'm getting to the point. There's some things that I'm doing a lot better with where I'm just like, I'm just not going to talk shit about myself about this. Right. I'm just not doing that anymore. There's still plenty of places where I'm like, oh, you know, what are you what are you doing? You know, um, and then, you know, the, the flip side is when you kind of look at this and you're like, oh, you know, you're giving yourself a hard time. And then somebody comes up to you and they're like, man, here's the thing that you did. That's so amazing. I'm, mm-hmm. I want to try. I want to talk about the thing that you're doing. That is that is primo. Right. Like this is my. This is the thing. I fangirl about this all that. I fangirl really a, a lot about the name. The concept I'm very excited about as well, but the name is just, it's just smart. It's a smart thing. So for folks that don't know you, you, you are, you've founded, you started this, this project, this training mm-hmm. project called Refire. Yeah. Uh, and you work with folks that are reentering after, after being incarcerated and you train them. And I'm not going to, I don't do it justice. I never do it justice, by the way, when I talk about it. I'm like, people come and she teaches them and there's this, this certification, but what it does is it sets them up for it. I get very excited. And then I talk about the name and all of that sort of stuff. So tell people that are listening that aren't familiar with this, you know, this is, this is me saying, you know, cause I can be kinder to you than you can be to yourself. You're doing a lot right now. This is really good stuff. This is important work that you're doing. Talk to us about refire. So I started thinking about refire in 2015 and refire is a kitchen slang term and it means to correct a mistake. You know, I, if you send a plate out and it comes back and you have to remake it, it's called a refire. You know, I need a refire on table 12, you know, and you have to do it very quickly and you have to do it perfectly. Um, and, and so refire, when I started with the idea, I also own a food truck. And um, because when my mom died, I kind of had this epiphany. I think everybody, when they lose the, you know, lose a parent, especially, but the you know, that uh, that aha moment of I'm just, you know, my I'm facing my own mortality. So my mom died in 2010. In 2011, I opened a food truck, and um, you know, with with Street Chef, it was like it was my passion, it was my love, I loved doing it, but I had a really hard time finding good labor. This is not a good town for labor. The labor market in, in Tallahassee is uh, not good. And you get a lot of college kids. And you get a lot of people who are terminal line cooks. And you have to, you can pay college kids crap, but they want every weekend off and then they go home for a month and then they're off all summer. You get what you pay for. Mm-hmm. And then, um, you know, terminal line cooks, it's the same thing. You know, you get what you pay for and they demand a higher wage. So I was having this really hard time. And I kind of had this just aha moment of, you know, I had a really hard time finding a job. I got into the restaurant industry because it's easy. They don't care about your background. You know, they don't, you show up and you, you do your job, you're going to pick up shifts and that's great. Um, And so I was like, well, we have a lot of people coming back to this area that need jobs. And we have a lot of restaurants in Tallahassee. We've got over, over 800 restaurants, food trucks, and, you know, I'm talking all the way from, you know, food trucks on the corner to go sit down and drop $300 on two people. You know, we got a lot of places to eat in this town. And so I started, the wheels started turning, and that's when the idea for Refire came about. It's an eight-week program for anybody with a felony conviction that's not sexual in nature. And we take you through 
basically the first nine months of culinary school in eight weeks. Mm. Um, you learn all about food safety and sanitation. You get all of the information that you need to pass the manager level serve safe certification, which is a nationally recognized five-year certification in food safety and sanitation. You pass that exam, you get letters after your name. You become a certified food protection manager, CFPM. And that's, you know, that's an incentive for a lot of them. I mean, you get letters after your name, man. When's the last time you thought you were going to have letters after your name, right? Um, you learn how to prepare meals in a safe and sanitary environment. You get a professional set of knives. You learn the proper way to hold your knife, how to cut, uh, how to clean your knife, uh, how to read recipes, how to talk, walk, think, move in a kitchen. You know, the whole language of being in a kitchen is different. Um, we say things like heard, you know, we, we let you know that, you know, we hear you by saying things like, oh, heard, you know, um, and you graduate and we help you get a job. We set you up with uh, interview techniques and resume workshops and, and we, we work with, uh, we work with career source and we help you navigate and help you learn how to do all these things that you probably didn't know how to do before. And we don't care what, you know, what your charge was. We don't care. The only reason I can't take people who uh, have uh, sexual offenses is because um, we are housed in a homeless shelter that services um, uh, women and children, families, basically. Um, so, you know, we can't have people with sexual offenses around kids under the age of 17. Right. Um, but, you know, other than that, I, I had I had a guy come through my program that did 19 years, seven months for uh, for homicide. Um, he spent more time incarcerated. He went, into, he went into prison at 19 years, five months of age wow. in August of 1999 and got out in January of 2018, did 19 years, seven months total. Um, and spent more time locked up than he did alive. And he is the kindest, most gentlest soul you'll ever meet in your entire life. He, the entire time Obama was in office, he was incarcerated. 9-11, he was incarcerated. I mean, it's, I mean, think about everything that happened to you from August of, of 1999 mm -hmm. till January of 2018. You know, it's, it's a lot. It's mind-blowing. So... So, yeah, so I started ReFire. We had our first class in um, 2017. In October 2017, we had four students. Um, one has reoffended and is back in prison and won't get out until I think he's eligible to be for parole in 20, 2041. Hmm. Um, he picked up some five new federal charges, um, but I still write to him still contact with him. Um, one is working for uh, one is one is working for Head Start and just got her probation terminated a year early and has been active in the Florida Rights Restoration Council and has spoken on the steps of the Capitol about um, restorative justice and um, getting people who have felony convictions voting rights restored and incredibly passionate. I mean, I could tell you a little bit of something about every single student that has come through my program and we've had, um, we've had over 50 students come through. We've had 30, uh, 36 graduates 
in uh, in the two and a half years that we've been going. 14 cohorts, um, 36 graduates, 30, yeah, 36 graduates. And I can tell you a little bit something about every single one of them. I still, I can tell you every, everybody's name. Um, and it, it's, it's turned, it's turned into more than just a job for me. You know, it's, when I got arrested in, uh, in 1995 and I, I was given, uh, I was given grace when there was no reason for me to have gotten it. Um, and not by the judge. Uh, the judge was, the judge gave me a sentence of two to 20, um, suspended with five years of probation on a theft of property in the first degree charge. I embezzled $5,690 from my employer. Um, and there are people who I know today that did far more heinous things than I did uh, and got far less time than I did. And, and that's fine. I'm not, whatever. Um, but I was given grace by people that I met, you know, people that came into my world. Um, I was able to get a job. You know, I, I, I went on a job interview. My probation officer told me, just leave the box. Just don't check the box. Just get the interview and explain in the interview. Mm-hmm. I got a job um, working at a, a music store, and I interviewed with a guy for, for a Christmas temp job. And it was an hour and a half long interview. We just hit it off. We're still friends today. He's one of my best friends. Lives in New Jersey now. And he told me that, uh, you know, he just really liked me and it was like, give me a shot. I'm like, great. And then I, three days into the job, the district manager was like, we need to make you a manager. You're just awesome. And I was like, okay, so there's something I have to tell you. I didn't tell him at that point. I came in the back and I I told him, I was like, this is the deal. This is where I am. This is what's going on. If you got to fire me, that's fine. And the district manager looked at me and said, if one cent comes up missing, I don't care if you were working that day or not, you're, you're done. And I'm like, that's fine. I'll take it. And uh, Doug looked at me and he said, you know, there are good people who do stupid things and there are bad people who do bad things. And I think you're a good person to do stupid things. And I was given a second chance, you know. And then in 1998, um, 19, yeah. I was uh, arrested in 1997 when I moved down to Florida, and then 1998 I was finally charged. Um, I, I, you know, it was another theft charge, and I had a public defender. I was still finishing my probation from Alabama. I moved to Florida, and um, the public defender was like, you know, nobody's going to believe you that you didn't do this. I was like, I didn't do this. And he's like, nobody's going to believe you because you already have a theft charge. So just plead no contest and just take whatever they give you. So I did, you know, and um, so that's how I got my my lovely pair of felony. Um, I always I always joke, you know, I've got I've I've collected the whole set. I don't need any more. Um, <laughs> so it's you know, I, so I I get what it's like to try and navigate the system, and I know that as I know that as a female, and I know that as a white female, you know, it's even you know even easier for me than it possibly ever could have been for, for someone else. I, I just try and keep that in mind, you know. Um, in 2006, I got pulled out of my bed three days before Christmas at 1130 at night for five lines on a teletype from 1996 that said this is not an executable warrant. And I spent 45 hours in the Leon County Jail Three days before Christmas, and nobody wanted to bond me out because it was an Alabama charge, 
and an Alabama bondsman didn't want me because I was in Florida and a Florida bondsman didn't want me because it was an Alabama charge. And, and I just did what I could do to just try and stay like in the moment because I, I had my civil rights restored by that point. I was, I got my voting rights back. Um, I owned a house. Uh, I had a decent job. I had been off of probation at that point for over five years. Uh, hadn't gotten so much as a speeding ticket. Uh, and they snatched me up in the middle of the night, you know, 1130 at night, three days before Christmas. And, um, it, it put in me what I call a permanent sense of incarceration. You know, I can't drive down the street and see, and, and see a cop car and not get that chill and the, I have no warrants. No one's looking for me. I, I've checked. Um, and that's what my students go through too. And I know that it's 10 times worse for them because 98% of my students are, are African American or they're black. They're, they're, and they're, most of them are men. And I'm not naive. I know that the system is set up for them to fail and they're angry. And for some of them, I'm the first person to stand up and be in their corner. And I don't say that to, to, you know, like, oh, I'm such a great person. I do this. It's like, you know, why am I the first person? Why, why is it me here with this 32 year old guy who's been just pissed on? Why am I the first person to stand up for this guy? I don't, I, I'll do it. I don't mind. It's great. I'm glad I can, but Jesus, why? Why is it me? So it's refire is a way for people to get into a secure job because up until a few months ago, I was thought, you know, everybody's got to eat. Nobody's ever going to stop going out to restaurants <laughs> who had that on their bingo card. God. But even with the pandemic, the class that graduated right after the pandemic started, the class that graduated in May had five students in it. All five of those students are working. All five of those students got jobs within a month of graduation. You know, we're we're putting skills into their into into their into their heads. We're giving information. We're giving we're giving these people an opportunity to learn something that they can then walk out and say, "I've done this. I can do this. Let me show you what I can do." And in that sense of empowerment, in that sense of confidence, you know. A guy who took the serve safe the first time he, he, he took it, it's not an easy test. It's hard. It, about, about 77% of our students pass the serve safe exam. 77 to 80% pass the serve safe exam. The rest of them get food handler cards, which is still a certification. Um, but it's not the big one. They, they all reach that big carrot. The first time he took it, he got, he scored in the, in the 50s and he was so discouraged. And he walked back into the kitchen and his team, his team rallied around him. And I was like, all right, man, we're going to retake it in, in a couple of days. You know, now you know what you're looking at. Now you know how it's going to be. His team rallied around. He took it the second time and he, he scored in the 80s. He passed. I mean, he's like, you know, it just it took what it took. And I think that that boost from the people that he's been working with and the people that he'd gotten to know. You know, there's something to be said for the team mentality and. You know, in basic training, you cannot survive basic training on your own. Right. You have to do it as a team. And that, again, something that I took and, and, and brought along with me. There's a, um, a poet. His name is, uh, Lamont Carey. 
and he talks about his incarceration and his convictions and reminds us that skills can be transferable. I understand supply and demand. I understand marketing. Skills are transferable. And I remind that of my students. You know, when we have to talk about math, we have to talk about the kitchen math, and there's fractions and met- sometimes metric and sometimes, and I'm like, how many, how many grams are in an ounce? Oh, 28.35? Gee, great. Glad you have that knowledge. Keep that <laughs> knowledge. Let me show you how to transfer that. Right. You know, nobody, ratios. All right. How many quarters are in a dollar? Four. Great. It's a four to one ratio. Oh. Like, yeah, that's all it's saying. It's like, you know, there's, you, it, it's just think about, you know, I take I'm not trained as an educator. I'm not. I know how to train people in a kitchen. I've been in the, been in the restaurant industry for going on going on 24, 25 years now. Um, and, and it's I know how to get things done, but I'm not a trained educator. But my friends who are teachers are like. You're doing what's called scaffolding. You're taking what knowledge is already there and you're building on it. And I'm like, okay, cool. That makes sense. I just want people to be able to come through my program and to leave with an idea that they can be the best version of themselves that they can possibly be. And it, that best version of themselves doesn't come from me. It doesn't come from anybody outside. It comes from them. And they've all carried their duffel bags of shit through their entire lives, you know, from some of them grew up homeless, some of them grew up with drug addict parents, some of them grew up in the foster system, whatever it is, everybody's got their own duffel bag of shit. And when you walk into the kitchen, none of that matters because all that matters is we've got a, we've got a meal to make and we've got to pull together as a team because this kitchen isn't going to clean itself and we've got to get the job done. And you can do that and you can be successful at it and you can make people happy with your food. And if that's the, if that's the best thing that you do today, it's a win. You know, it really is. It's so so funny. It's so funny too. Like you, you say that you said, I remember you were talking about this a little while ago about this idea of being in this trauma informed space, right? And how that doesn't fit with the sensibilities, but that does fit with the sensibilities. Everybody comes with shit and we're going to, we're going to, we're going to deal with that. We're going to deal with it by saying we all know we came with something and now let's move into something else that helps us get into a different space. I mean, that is, that is really the, the, the bottom level definition of what it is. We've got to recognize that folks are coming with that. And then how do we, how do we not necessarily embrace them? Not necessarily depending on what our role is. Your role isn't as a counselor. Your role is to, is to train these folks to give them these things but you're not looking at them and going, okay, we know exactly all of these things and we've made up these, these ideas now about who you are. It's, did you clean this? Did you put this away? <laughs> did you take care of these things that needed to be taken care of? And I think that that's really, I mean, it's crucial. It, and, it, and again, it, it, there's something that there's this level of humanity that folks often don't find themselves being encountering, right, in other people. Um, when they're coming from situations where where somebody has decided that they're better than them, that that just doesn't happen. I know that I, I know how people treat people when they think that they're better than them, and I can only imagine that somebody that's coming out of being incarcerated runs into 
just people in the world, all the fucking hoops that people have to jump through to do the simplest things, the systems that are set up against them, the ways that you can't, even if you had a professional skill, you might not necessarily be able to go back to work in the same places that you were. Um, I think that it's just really important when folks are, are trying to figure out ways to knock some of those barriers down, to help people navigate that, to give people tools that they didn't have or an assist. I remember being in your office and, uh, and, and one of the students needed, needed stuff for her apartment. And I was super excited because literally somebody had just picked up like a couple of truckloads full of stuff. And it's like, holy shit, we can put this together right now. We can just, we can level the playing field for this person who, who wouldn't have had the time to run around to get all of those things. Um, and it's that sort of stuff that, that folks that don't know what people are going through don't understand, like these simple kind of connections, simple for, for me and you maybe to do those things or to put people together and get out of the way and let the, let them figure it out on their own, but just be able to make it easier for people to get some stuff done. I didn't plan it. This isn't, you know, I, I didn't plan this at all, but, you know, I, I'm talking to you. I talked to this woman named uh, Onika Rains, who's a sleep doula who started her work um, doing prison uh, abolition stuff. I didn't even realize it was, I mean, I didn't, I didn't have the language around it. I knew that that was a thing, right? And she was talking about how she started connecting into sleep because of seeing how people, how poorly people were resting when they were incarcerated because of all of the things around it. You can't turn off the lights when you want to, you know, all these sorts of things. And, and then talking with um, Jessica Yeary, who's a defense attorney, right? And hearing these, these different sides, this isn't a world that I spend any time in. I don't know anything about this, but kind of hearing this and hearing the ways that all of you have connected your own humanity, your own heart into how do we support people so that this doesn't have to be a continuation. You don't have to keep doing this. You can move out of this and move into a different, a different space that just feels really rich to me. I, I, a lot of people don't understand what, it, you know, they see somebody, oh, you have a felony conviction. That means you're a bad person. And I'm like, there's a fallacy in your reasoning. You know, there are good people who do stupid things and there are bad people who do bad things. You know, uh, someone's best bad decision, it might have been the thing that saved them. You know, the, the man who breaks the pharmacy window to get medicine for his wife. A window is broken, but a life is saved. You know, it, it there's, there's an inherent value in our society on um on what's right and what's wrong right so if someone can make that judgment you know oh you've been in prison oh you were on probation oh you've been arrested you're a bad person you are not worthy of you know our trust or our support the analogy i often use is how how many of us have maxed out a credit card Oh, uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, right? Well, when you pay it off, you don't get a letter every month saying, hey, remember that one time that you maxed right. out your credit card? That was really crappy of you. How could you possibly have done that? Or, you know, have you ever borrowed money from a friend and then it took it took a little while, but you paid it back? Yeah. If they're a good, if they're a good friend, they don't go, remember that one time I lent you a hundred bucks and it took you five months to pay me back? Man, that was really crappy. No. We let it go. When a debt is paid, it's done. Unfortunately, that's not how our criminal justice system works. And as you have been exposed to, 
in the other two interviews that you've done and, and done brilliantly. Um, these are these are people who have been put through the ringer and who feel like they're never going to be able to get past that best bad decision that they made to do whatever it is that they did. I felt that way. I remember coming home. I remember interviewing for a job that I didn't want and coming home and crying because I was certain I wasn't going to get it because the 2006 arrest came up on my background check because it was a management job with a quick service restaurant. I had been out of culinary school for a few years. Um, and I, the job was beneath me. I felt like the job was beneath me because here I was a classically trained chef. And I'm going to take a job in a bagel shop. Are you kidding me? And, and someone who I respected said, you need a job. This is the job. You should take a job. And I'm like, oh. and I interviewed for it. And I went back for the second interview and the district manager asked me about it. And I was like, yeah, that's that's because they said, we're going to pull a background. What are we going to find? And I'm like, here you go. Here's what you're going to find. And she's like, wait, what? And I'm like, yeah, here you go. Here's what you're going to find. She's like, oh, okay. And, and I just looked her in the eye and I was like, hey, if you can't hire me because of what I did over a decade ago, that's cool. I totally get that. That is my cross to bear. I made that mistake and I have to carry it with me. But if you don't want to hire me just because of that, I'd ask you to give me a chance. Let me show you what I can do. And that's what I tell my students, you know, it's, Get out there, show them who you are now, not what you did. We are not the sum of our decisions in that sense. You know, we're not, there are a lot of things that I am. I am, I'm a partner. I'm a chef. I am a pet parent. I'm a Mets fan. I am a member of the LGBTQ community. I am a daughter. I have felony convictions. Not a felon. I have felony convictions. And I will not let anyone brand me with that scarlet F anymore, ever again. It's not who I am. It's what I did. And that shouldn't make someone want to make a decision about me. But it does. And it sucks. I think that's... I think that's it. I think that's... That's it. Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. This is this is my soapbox. This and West Wing. I could talk about this all day long. <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and the and the reign of the of the New York Mets. And I don't mean reign as in like kingdom. I mean reign as in downpour. Oh, we're down five three. Yeah, yeah, we well, you know. <laughs> Let's go Mets. We're going to, we're going to, um, we're going to, um, we're going to wrap this up here. I think this is it. I think that's that point there, I think is the most salient point. I mean, give you a lot of material. I, you know, I, it's always better to have more than less than, uh, you know, that's the thing. Um, but I think that it's, it's also, I don't know. It's just, it's good. It's always good to get a different perspective. The more I hear from people and the more people will share their stories with me, the more I learn, the better person I'm going to be. Um, I'm better for it. I'm clearly better for knowing you. I am better for doing this. Um, 
it, it's, it's just all, it's all good. And, and, you know, and there's somebody that's going to hear this and it's going to, it's going to be important to them. I don't know how, I know it will be, um, that somebody will hear this and, and, and feel seen and feel understood in a way that they hadn't before. So I really, I really thank you for your time. Um, yeah. Thank, thank you. you. I thank you for six years ago hiring me to do that catering for you. One of the best decisions I've ever made. Uh, you know, <laughs> honestly, like we wouldn't have, we wouldn't have known each other. It was I was like, yeah, okay, I'll eat food, whatever. And you said some smart ass something. I can't even remember what mm-hmm. it was. And I was like, oh, she's my person. I didn't mm-hmm. even know. And I thought this was just about lunch, and here we yep. are. And here we are. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> Thanks for joining us this week on Your Life After. This podcast is made possible by the generous support of our patrons. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe so you'll never miss out. Information about becoming a patron, show notes, and transcripts from today's episode can be found on our website, wsw.center slash your life after. That's wsw.center slash your life after, or just go to the homepage and click podcast from the main menu. Thanks again for listening. I'll see you next time. Be peaceful.